Hey, good morning. Hey, uh, we're going to do something a little different this morning. Um, as we work our way through it, I'll, I'll try to explain to you what, uh, what we're doing. But uh, <clears throat> we are in Exodus, and we have found ourselves uh, last week, uh, we found ourselves kind of closing at the end of chapter uh, 36. We had touched on, um, you know, attributes, as we went through the scripture, attributes of kingdom builders, right? Y'all remember that? Anybody here last week that remembers what I'm talking about? And we had touched on several of the things that the scripture revealed to us, one being the fact that uh, before the children even set out, or children of Israel even set out to start to construct the tabernacle, uh, the, the command was given by God through Moses to adhere to the directions that God had given them. And so we talked about right off the bat that you know, uh, uh, kingdom builders are people who do things God's way, right? And we went down through there and we touched on several things. And, and at the end of it, from verses 8 through 38, I read several scriptures to you guys that began with, and they did this, and they did that, and they built this, and they built that. And what was taking place was they were basically building the inner sanctum or the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle. And the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle that they were constructing at that moment was basically 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. And within this tabernacle, within this sanctuary, this sanctum, uh, this, this rectangular box, there was two rooms. And, and we know this when we study the scripture. There was two rooms in this, in this sanctum. And in the, the first room was what we refer to as the, the holy place. And inside there was the table of showbread and the altar of incense and the lampstand or the golden menorah. And, and that right there, that room was blocked off by a veil or a curtain from the outward, uh, the outward courtyard. Behind that room, uh, closed off by another curtain, was the coup de grace. The Ark of the Covenant, right? The presence of God. And so, and I told Carrie, and I've told several people, preparing for this this week has probably, Aaron, been the, more, the most difficult time I've had in trying to navigate a portion of Scripture. And I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, Trent, we've heard you preach. You've had a difficult time many times, right? But I'm telling you, uh, and it's not because I'm not understanding what the Scripture is saying, because the Scripture is giving us basically uh, instructions and then the construction, right? But it's hard for me to convey to you uh, instructions and construction when it looks just like a blueprint. Or I'm giving you, you know, uh, if you're a carpenter, you understand what I'm talking about, where you're just reading blueprints, and you're like, you're like man, what's the spiritual significance to that, man? I mean, what, what are we going to get from that, Trent? We're going to learn how to, how to build a shed, or build a box? What, what is up with that? And so you guys remember, I'm trying to pull all this together, so stay with me. You guys remember when we uh, um, endeavored or we arrived at chapter 25, and from chapters 25 to around chapter 30, God was giving instructions to Moses on his first trip up to Sinai in regards to the construction of the tabernacle, the responsibilities of the priest, Aaron, and so forth. And he was giving them instructions regarding the furniture that would make up the tabernacle. Right? And what I told you guys was this. For the sake of not committing a, some level of a redundance or a, a crime of redundance, I said once we get to the corresponding scriptures that are found in chapter 36 and 37 and 38 and 39, we would reference the scriptures of instruction, right? I didn't want to read over it twice and then just overwhelm you with what can be at times uh, difficult things to navigate, right? So y'all remember me saying all that. And so... What we're going to do, we're going to do something a little bit different today because I'm a visual learner. Anybody here visual learners? Danny Nichols, I know you're not a visual learner. 
Danny Nichols over there, my, my brother, uh, obviously is, is blind, but I'm not sure that he was a visual learner before. And, uh, but uh, every, uh, did, did you raise your hand? I didn't, I didn't see visual learners. I'm a visual learner. I see things. I, 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 and not only visual, sometimes I got to put my hand on things. You know what I'm talking about? You know, uh, when I learn about tools and learn about this, sometimes you just got to get in there and just jack it up really good. You know what I'm talking about? You sometimes mix it up. But, but I am, a, I, I need to see things. I need to see things. So this week, what I've decided to do, and I'll do it next week, is as we read the scripture pertaining to the construction of the outer court, the construction of the altar of sacrifice, to the construction this morning of the, uh, the wash basin or the laver, we are going to show a video, a 3D rendering of that actually happening as I read the scripture. So it's not enough that you hear what I'm saying. I want you to see it. Because at the end of the day, my desire is that you understand what is happening and you can visually see it. You can take it into your, because there's things you can't unsee, right? Things you can't unsee. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And uh, I'd ask that you pray with me. Pray for me this morning as we navigate this portion of Scripture. Also pray, listen, we got several families out this morning who are away from us. We've got several who have probably been rained out. But uh, be praying for your church family as well. Amen? Amen. Okay, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look um, at the Scripture, and we're going to set this thing in motion, and then uh, Clark and those in the back are going to hope and, and pray that this thing doesn't completely fall apart this morning. We're liable to hit a video and the monitors explode. I'm not sure. But we're going to try it, right? We're going to try it. So let, let's pray to our Father. Father, in Jesus' name, we want to share this morning to the benefit of the hearer, to your sons and daughters that they might see Jesus. Even in the pages of Exodus, may we see him. So, Father, in my frailty and my limitations, Lord, I, I construct this notion of trying to convey your truth. And I know it's vulnerable. I know it's vulnerable, but, I, Lord, I, I subject myself to the leading of your spirit. And I pray, Father, that you would cover my efforts with grace, that your sons and daughters uh, would not suffer in a detrimental fashion from my lack of ability to convey and communicate what the text is rendering to us this morning. And so, Father, I bless my brothers and my sisters in the name of Jesus. Guard our hearts and our minds this morning. And this we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. And I am going to say this. Most of you guys know this. I am uh, a hard-hearted individual. Very seldom will you see me shed a tear. Uh, this scripture, this scripture shows so much of Jesus. When we make our way through the tabernacle, it shows us so much of Jesus that at times it's just overwhelming. My failure, or at least my challenge this morning, Chandler, is to try to convey that to where you'll see what I'm seeing. Because in this scripture, you know, there's, a, 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 there's a term in, in the old theological realm, and it's called topology. And it means like a, a type of. And what we're seeing in the construction of the sanctuary is a type of Jesus or an image of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I would say to you, when you start to study the life of Jesus, understanding this scripture in Exodus, you almost hear the echo of the tabernacle resonating through the life of Jesus. And when you read Exodus with a consideration of who Jesus was, you see the echo in reverse of the life of Jesus in the construction of the tabernacle. Okay? Now, 
We're going to open up this scripture and we're going to read some things and we're going to start to approach it. Now what we're not going to do is read through 37 through 38, right? Because it starts with the Ark of the Covenant. I don't want to start with the Ark of the Covenant. What I want to do over the next two weeks is we're going to go in such an order as we're going to construct the tabernacle as though we're approaching it from the outside, entering in ultimately into the Holy of Holies. So as we go through this from an academic standpoint, a biblical standpoint, there's going to be this visual progression to the tabernacle and into the tabernacle and through the tabernacle, okay? So we're going to go that way as opposed to going reverse. All the scripture will be handled. Instead of reading chapters of, of 37 and part of 38, we're actually going to pull from the scripture that was found previously where there's much more detail. Much more detail. And so what we're finding right off the bat right off the bat, is that the children of Israel are going from instruction, Tim, to construction. And you're like, man, what's the application with that? The application is this. James echoes these sentiments, these very sentiments in chapter 1, verse 22, when James says what? James says these words, and you can follow along with us on the screens of monitors. Do not merely be listeners to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what the word says. The children of Israel had been given instruction. It wasn't enough to have instruction. They were given a charge with the instruction, Kevin, to carry this thing out. You and I as followers of Jesus have been given the exact same charge and that is to be doers and hearers and not hearers only right we understand this so we're starting to see a principle already being established right here now God prior to the construction of the sanctuary or the tabernacle remember he makes his intentions known he literally says and we've read this scripture in Exodus 25 verse 8 he says then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Right off the bat, God establishes what his intentions are, and that is to live in the midst of his people. He has a desire and a compulsion within his own love to redeem and restore his people into a relationship with himself. Now we see Jesus in this. I mean, the Gospel of John literally reasserts every principle, every concept I just now shared. In John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, it reads like this. Now stay with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, right? And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, same chapter, the scripture says, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skano is the word for dwelling, and it literally means, we've covered this previously, it literally means Pitch your tent or pitch your sanctuary. So what we see is this reasserting of the heart of God. So not only did God desire for them to construct a sanctuary by which he would dwell amongst them, he takes it a step further and says in his word, his son became flesh and literally in a physical body pitched his tent or pitched his sanctuary amongst us and dwelt amongst us. So we see this image of Jesus already being displayed in the heart of God when he gives that direction. Are you, are you tracking with me? Because I'll go back, I'll repeat every bit of that. I mean from the very beginning. I want you to get, so if you're not tracking with me, get the podcast and just give me an affirming yes so I don't go back and torture everyone else. Okay? Hit your neighbor and say, can you get with me after service explain this? He sounds like he's rambling, right? <clears throat> I want to I read this to you. These are images. These are images. Understand this. God in constructing the tabernacle literally wanted to be the center of the lives of the children 
of Israel. The center of their lives. As a matter of fact, Numbers chapter 2 verse 2 literally says that all around the tabernacle, on the four sides of the tabernacle, three, listen, three of each tribe was encamped on all sides of the tabernacle. Do you know that? They were encamped around the tabernacle. He literally wanted them to be, he wanted to be in the center of all 12 tribes. It goes a step further. When you read the scripture, it says, and they shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. So he's wanting them, their lives to be constructed and built with the intentions of seeing him. Do you, you do get this, right? That God wants to reveal himself. He wants your eyes fixed on him. He wants to reveal himself to you. You do. Get that, right? Some of your translations will render, render that a distance. But the actual Hebrew word is neged, and it means to be in front of or opposite of. Literally seeing the, the, the tabernacle walls and being opposite of that, seeing that. And so when you read your scripture and it says in some distance, that's the rendering in your translation, but it actually means to be opposite of or facing that. The incredible thing about it is this tabernacle is being constructed and it is 150 feet long. Or long. It is 75 feet wide and in the front of it you do have 22 and a half feet uh, uh, sidewalls here on, the, on one side, 22 and a half feet of sidewalls on this side and then you have a 30 foot gate in the middle. But the reality of the tabernacle, there is only one gate. You get that, right? There is only one one gate. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read regarding the tabernacle courtyard in Exodus chapter 27 verses 9 through 19 and the corresponding verses are in Exodus 38, 9 through 20. Hold on Clark. This is going to be a long reading. Are you, are you guys ready? Okay, fix your eyes on the screen I will try to stay in some level of cadence with the operational screen. This hasn't been uh, mastered, so I'm just going to read this scripture to you, and we'll pray that God would speak to you. Go ahead, Clark. Then make the courtyard for the tabernacle, enclosed with curtains made of finely woven linen. On the south side, make the curtains 150 feet long, and they will be held up by 20 posts set securely in 20 bronze bases. Hang the curtains with silver hooks and rings. Make the curtains the same on the north side, which is 150 feet of curtains held up by 20 posts set securely in bronze bases. The scripture says, Hang the curtains with silver hooks and rings. The curtains on the west end of the courtyard shall be 75 feet long, supported by 10 posts set into 10 bases. The east end, get this, the east end of the courtyard, the front will also be 75 feet long. The courtyard entrance will be on the east end flanked by two curtains. The curtain on the right side will be 22 and a half feet long, supported by three posts set into three bases. The court on the left side will also be 22 and a half feet long, supported by three posts set into three bases. For the entrance to the courtyard, make a curtain that is 30 feet long. Make it from finely woven linen and decorate it with a beautiful embroidery in blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Support it with four posts. Support with four posts, each securely set in its own base. All the posts around the courtyard must have silver rings and hooks and bronze bases. So the entire courtyard will be 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, with curtain walls seven and a half feet high. Made from finely woven linen, the bases for the post will be made of bronze. All the articles in the rituals of the tabernacle, including all the ten pegs used to support the tabernacle and the courtyard curtains, must be made of bronze. Did you guys just see what we just read? Yes. 
hopefully you get a visual and, and, and it imprints in your mind this image of what the courtyard was. Now I want to give you some, some, some uh, idea of the sim- symbolism of this courtyard, okay? And it's revealed in the instructions that Moses had just given them, all right? There's an incredible principle that's involved here. There is only one gate into the courtyard. The one gate is on the eastern side of the tabernacle. The Holy of Holies would then rest going west to the other end of the sanctuary or the tabernacle. You get you with me on that? You say, well, what is the symbolism in that, Trent? It is a construct, a physical construct of a spiritual reality. When we go back into Genesis, when Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden, listen to what the Scripture says. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. They were driven out. The eastern side of the garden was then guarded. The only way back to God would be an about turn, an about face turn. You would have to approach through the eastern blockage and you would have to be going in a western direction. The tabernacle represents this beautifully, meaning the only way the children of Israel a uh, relationship with God could be restored, would have to be restored by them entering into this eastern gate, right? Going the opposite direction, going west. God has established this and said, regardless of where the tabernacle was established, it would always be established with the gate being on the eastern side and it reflects God's desire in, in a symbolic way to say to the children of Israel through this tabernacle, I have shown you that I desire you to come home. Do you not see this the beauty of the gate, the way that he establishes, what he has barred them from in regards to entering back into Eden. He says with the gate, I've established a manner and a method for you to approach me once again. And if you're Israel and you're starting to see this thing unfold, they had never seen this. They had never witnessed this. But they knew the history of their people. They knew the fall of man. They knew the separation. The outer walls represented the separation. And the eastern gate represented access again to the fall. Oh, some of you... Some of you, oh, you feel like you've been driven out, man. You feel like you're living in a place, you're, you're experiencing a, a, a season of your life where you feel like you've been separated to some degree. You almost feel as though you've been driven out. And the Father in Jesus has established a gate by which you can return to the love of the Father. This is the, the, the typology of Jesus right here. As a matter of fact, Jesus says in John chapter 2, this is absolutely beautiful. Listen, the Pharisees, man, were arguing amongst themselves regarding Jesus. And Jesus speaks in regards to their debate in, Exodus, or in uh, John chapter 10. And this is what Jesus says. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate. (laughs) For the sheep, all who come before me, or all who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Jesus is saying, I am the means, the way, the access, and I'm the only gate. I'm the gate. He didn't say he was a gate, but he was the gate. And listen, you can work as hard as you want to work. You can give as much as you want to give, and you can do as much as you want to do, but in all those efforts, a new gate will not be established for you. 
There is but one gate by which we can enter in to a redeeming, restoring relationship with the Father. And the tabernacle reflects that one gate. One gate. Jesus is the gate, and Peter declares this, right? In Acts chapter 4, remember, he's brought before the Sanhedrin, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. These people knew about the gate. They knew about this. And Peter said these words regarding Jesus being the only way to access the Father. Peter says this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter literally, if he could echo the words of Jesus, he would say to the teachers of the law who should know, hey boys, you, you know Jesus is the gate to the tabernacle of God. Now they would have kicked back on that, pushed back on that. Why? Because they didn't want to accept the truth. And you and I have a choice set before us today, understanding what we know about the Scripture, what we know about Jesus, is do we want to accept that or reject it? Rejecting it doesn't change it. Exodus, hold on a second, Clark. Chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. Whenever, I want to say this to you, whenever... You walk in through the gate of the tabernacle. This would be the first thing you would see. Go ahead, Clark. <clears throat> Using acacia wood, construct a square altar seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet long, and four and a half feet high. Make horns for each of its four corners so that the horns and the altar are all one piece. Overlay the altar with bronze. Make ash buckets, shovels, basins, meat forks, and fire pans all of bronze. Make a bronze grating for it and attach four bronze rings at its four corners. Install the grating halfway down the side of the altar under the ledge. For carrying the altar, make poles from acacia wood and overlay them with bronze. Insert the poles through the rings on the two sides of the altar. The altar must be hollow, made from planks. Build it just as you were shown on the mountain. Do you see the altar of burnt offerings? Do you see that? I hope that image sinks deep into your mind. Now we've entered into this tabernacle. We've come through this gate, and the first thing we see is this altar of burnt offerings. Why do we see the altar of burnt offerings right there at that moment? Why do we see that? It speaks to us that it is needed, right? The very first thing we recognize in coming into this tabernacle is that there is a place for burnt offerings to be received, right? We have to acknowledge if there's a place for a burnt offering, what then does it represent? It represents your sin. It represents my sin. The, 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 the altar of burnt offerings was basically to consume sin offerings, praise and thanksgiving offerings. And what would basically happen is an individual would come into that tabernacle and they would come in with whatever animal that they were giving to the priest to, to be uh, uh, verified for sacrifice acceptable. And when they would come in to that room, into that courtyard, the individuals would then place their hands on the head of the animal, transferring the sin of that individual upon that animal, and then that animal's life would be taken on behalf of that person for their sin. Are you, you tracking with me? You tracking with me? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 through 7 says this. Regarding Jesus, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Get that? For this reason it can never by the same sacrifice repeatedly, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. It can't do it. It can't make us perfect if we're the ones who want to draw near to worship. Otherwise would they not have stopped being offered. 
For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins. Listen to what Jesus says. Listen to what is being spoken. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. In every sense of the word, our sin was laid upon him. A sacrifice acceptable to the Father on behalf of you and I he pays the ultimate price that you and I not only can go free, but enter into the presence of Almighty God in His name. That's what the Scripture says. And the reality, the reality of the Scripture that you and I both know is that every one of us needed it. There was no one then and no one now being able to enter into that place and bypass that altar. No one is. You know why? Because it says in Romans chapter 3, 23 and 25, all have sinned. Who is that? It's Trent. It's you. All have sinned. It's Josh. Did I say it was Josh? It's Josh. Look, Josh like, I know I've sinned, Trent. It's me. It's me, and all of us have got to acknowledge this. I equally need the same provision, regardless of my background, my history, my studying, my, my, my uh, 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 degrees, or lack thereof. He said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And listen to this, though, because of that sacrifice, and all are justified. Freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Of atonement. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now, now I want you to understand something, and I'm glad that you saw the video. Do you remember the four horns on top of the altar? Do you remember those four horns? Now, the Israelites were not allowed to burn animals who were alive. But there were animals who were bound, whose lives were taken, and then they were placed on the altar, and they were bound to the four corners of the altar. Did you know this? Did you know this? As a matter of fact, in Psalms chapter 118, the scripture says, God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Bind. The sacrifice, I can't help, it just triggers this visual of Jesus and Matthew being led before Pilate. You remember this? And the scripture prefaces him being led there by saying this, and early in the morning all the chief priests and elders of the people made their plans to have Jesus executed, and they bound him. And just like the altar of sacrifice has four corners by which the sacrifice could be bound, the cross, too, has four symbolic corners by which Jesus was bound to the cross for you and for me. But he isn't bound there against his will. It, it was neither nails nor straps that secured him to those four corners of that cross. But it's his willingness and his love to go there for you and me so that you and I could be drawn to the Father. Right? Right? You see this, right? 
We only have one more video. You say, Tristan, this is the shortest sermon ever. It's a long video. It isn't. It isn't really. But now we have moved beyond the altar of burnt sacrifice. You know what's next? It's the wash basin, the lava, right? All of this has got to take place before we ever enter into the holy place. And when I read this, because of my own posture and my own heart, I felt just struck. Because this is something that happens to me all the time. Disappointing as it may be, it, it does happen. Because I've been following Jesus for some time now, and yet this thing continues to happen to me, and I will reference it after this video. Exodus 27, verses 1 through 8. Clark, go ahead. Or 17 through 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze wash basin with a bronze stand. Place it between the tabernacle and the altar. You see it? And fill it with water. Aaron and his sons will wash their hands and feet there. They must wash with water whenever they go into the tabernacle to appear before the Lord. And when they approach the altar to burn their special gifts to the Lord, when they, when they do that or they will die, they must always wash their hands and feet or they will die. This is a permanent law for Aaron and his descendants to be observed from generation to generation. The priest would be cleansed daily and the very materials used in building the basin for washing kind of expresses to you and I the why. And this is what I was referencing. Do you know what the basin were made out of? Do you know what the basin, we just, we just read it, right? Right, you said the bronze or the copper. But when you go to Exodus chapter 38, verse 8, it tells where they actually got the copper or the bronze. Do you know where they got it? You probably don't. We haven't got there yet, unless you're reading ahead. Let me read it to you. Understanding this is what the wash basin is made of. Exodus chapter 38, verse 8, it says, And he made the bronze wash basin, and its bronze stand from bronze mirrors donated by the women who served at the entrance of the tabernacle. There's something revealing about that, right, Ryan? That the very thing that would hold the water by which you would be cleansed and made pure ceremonial in a ceremonial fashion to enter into that most holy. The thing holding that water, a mirror, a bronze mirror, copper mirror. And the reality as we approach God is if we're bold enough and honest enough to look into the reflection it then becomes a catalyst to recognize the need to be cleansed, to be washed. But do we deceive ourselves in thinking that we have arrived at such a place that I no longer have to look at myself and assess myself in relations not to Trent, not to Chase or to Dennis. None of you guys are being measured against me. We're being measured against Jesus. And regardless of what we think about ourselves, if we can take an honest look into the mirror and allow it to reflect who we really are, there is no way we come away from that situation understanding the comparison is to him that we don't acknowledge the depths, the depths of our dirtiness the depths of our impurities, the depths of our own sin, the desperate need to be washed and be cleansed. When I said what I said earlier, there's times, Chase, man, when I'm really doing good, man. Life's going my way. 
right? I'm like a, an all-star Christian. You know what I'm talking about? I'm hitting about 400. I'm a 40-40 man. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a gamer. I mean, I'm really bringing it. I'm shooting about 90% from the line, about 50% from three-point, from the field. I don't know, about 50. I mean, I'm a gamer. I mean, I'm, I'm all-star level. And I really think, man, I've arrived, Jay. I've arrived. And then something happens. <laughs> and man, sometimes it's in my car. Sometimes it's in my home. Sometimes it's church. And out of nowhere, the mirror is raised before my very eyes. And my failure and my lack and all that God places before me. And I have to say to him, Jeremiah, this is a constant, man. I don't know if this is where you're at or, or not. This is a constant. I have to say to him, forgive me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Right? And the bronze mirror made basin exposes us to that reality. I love 1 John. This is one of the first John 1 9 was like the first Bible verse I memorized, Kevin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? You guys know this, right? How many of you know that scripture? Right? Okay, it's all right if you don't. That's the first one I memorized. First one I memorized. But there's a verse that precedes it. And it says this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You know what the wash basin is saying? Get honest. See yourself for who you really are. See where you're really at. Come on, man. Get honest. And John says, hey, man, if you see this isn't your condition, then you're deceiving yourself. But if you're willing to get honest and you're willing to confess, he's faithful and just to cleanse just like the water from the basin would cleanse the priest's hands and the priest's feet. Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Catharizo is the Greek word and it literally means to remove impurities. Have you been in this journey so long that you say to yourself, in a foolish manner, I have no impurities to be removed. Then you deceive yourself. You deceive yourself. But if you're willing to say, hey, Trent, I looked into the mirror, that being Jesus, the wash basin, that being Jesus. And compared to him, yeah, man, I got a long ways to go. Jesus, can you come? Can you cleanse me? Can you cleanse me? And the reality this morning, as we close on this portion of this scripture, the reality this morning is Jesus is absolutely our, not just yours, but my, our wash basin. He doesn't expose our impurities to slander us. He exposes our impurities that we might acknowledge the need to have him cleanse us. And you say, oh, Trent, man, there's times I feel so convicted. It feels, oh, the conviction isn't to drive you away. The conviction is to bring and draw you in, man. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, we're going to close with this scripture. And we're just outside of the inner sanctum. And we'll be there next week. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
He's addressing a group of people. And this was a rough group of people, man. Liars, thieves, men sleeping with men. That's what the scripture says. I mean, these were, I mean, debauchery. This was full-blown, man. I mean, just craziness taking place in Corinth. And you know what the apostle Paul said to those people regarding the cleansing of Jesus? He said, and that is what some of you were. <laughs> That's what it says, man. You say, Trent, is there anyone beyond the redemption? Is there anyone beyond the wash basin? I say to you this morning, absolutely not. If you're willing to look at it and see yourself for who you really are. Paul said these words, and that is what some of you were. Listen, but you were washed. <laughs> Tim, I know what you were, brother. And you know what I was. We were like some of them, brother. You know what I'm talking about? We had our own stuff going on, man. But you know the good news? We've been washed. Because <laughs> we saw the reflection. We saw who we were, the need that we had. We've been washed, you see. Been washed in Jesus. Yeah. He says, you were washed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, you were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, you were justified. <laughs> you know the justification then allows for movement on into the holy place. <laughs> you don't stay at the wash basin, man. There's an invite to come deeper. You've been washed, sanctified, and justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And the call of the tabernacle, the call of the cross has always been, never changes to God's creation. Come on. Come on. Amen. Stand with me this morning. With our heads bowed, just let's, I always say this, but to those who are visitors, I reiterate it to them. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, in, in that act of submission to God, we enter into our own private prayer closets. These are dark closets where we do business with God and he hears our cries, he hears our confessions, our acknowledgments, our cries for mercy and it's in those prayer closets that we are washed, sanctified, justified. And it's in those prayer closets the work of God is done that allows us to continue to move towards home. So as you are there this morning, I ask you, enter into that gate that we know to be Jesus. Accept the sacrifice that he's provided And look into his image and see the lack in your own life, in your own heart, in your own person. And then with the water that he provides, the living water, the scripture says that Jesus said, I'll, I'll give you a well of water welling up from within you. Oh, the idea that there's a water provided by God that washes us from the inside welling up within us. Understand this is a reality. If that's you this morning, 
that you're willing to put yourself there before Jesus and say to him, do this work, then he will do the work. And you can leave here completely justified. Washed, set apart, justified, moving forward with God. But we don't get there when we deceive ourselves. That's not me, Trent. I, I don't. I've reached the mark. I've arrived there. There's nothing I can do for you, my brother, my sister, if that is the posture of your spirit and your heart. But if you're willing to humble yourself, then what God has for you is available. To him who is willing to humble himself this morning. So Father, we come before you this morning. In this moment, we consider your plan of redemption. And the tabernacle, as beautiful as it is, was just a shadow of things to come. Oh, it looks like Jesus. It smells like Jesus. It feels like Jesus. It is the shadow of Christ. And so, Father, this morning as we come to you, hear the prayers of your sons, your daughters, those who are at a distance who are going west, coming home, entering through that gate. Lord, would you just put your arms around them? And that turn home, Lord, would you forgive them? Would you restore them? Oh, God, cleanse them. And make them whole. And Father, as we leave this sanctuary this morning, at whatever time we find ourselves departing, may we depart with the knowledge that your plan has always been about redeeming and restoring. May we respond to you knowing that is the case. So Father, for my brothers and sisters, I pray that you would continue to speak to them, continue to work in them. Continue to love them. Continue to leave them home. A journey home. Some of us, some of us have started today. A journey home, Father. And we thank you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. It's in the name of Jesus we ask all that we do ask. It's in the name of Jesus that we've been made whole. And it's in his name. And the sons and daughters of God, in Christ's name, said amen. Amen. God bless you.